0: we're starting an AppSec program, brand new company, we have nothing uh, and we're starting. The first thing I would do is go to the chief product officer or the chief financial officer and go, where are we driving value and revenue from? And figure out what things engineering is working on that delivers that. And then go sit with those engineering teams and just participate in their scrum. Like Sit in their daily scrums, their planning meetings and listen to the problems that they're trying to solve and how they're solving them and how they're thinking about them for a month i would maybe say hello and stuff and not be creepy but i wouldn't say anything else in their scrums and just tell them like i'm here to observe i want to understand what you guys are working on
1: hello and welcome to devops Sona. the devops conference is coming again on march 8th and 9th and you are invited to join our event to build the excitement we have invited some exciting people to join our podcast and share a bit of backstory to the themes we will be covering in the event this time we have Scott Gerlock and Darren Richardson Scott is a long-term security practitioner and the chief security officer and co-founder of StackHawk Darren Richardson is a cloud security architect at Efficode Scott and Darren discuss about the API security testing tools How to help developers embrace security in the right level, how front and back-end developers should approach negotiation and contracts for APIs, and what requirements should companies look from from an API security testing tool. Let's tune into the conversation. Thank you for taking the time, Scott and Darren, and welcome both to DevOpsona podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: Thank
1: you. We are in preparations for the DevOps conference. And those people who haven't been to the DevOps conference before, let's just put out some facts from uh, the previous time we had it in uh, March 2021. We had a little more than 10,000 people who registered, and uh, concurrently, we had almost 3,000 people joining at the best hour of the two days, and um, almost 7,000 people joining over that period of two days. So it's going to be a packed agenda, and there's going to be a lot of interesting talks. And today we are going to talk about security, which is coming up as a theme in the DevOps conference. More specifically today, we are going to talk about API security and API security testing tools. Why don't we jump right into the first question and the conversation around how to teach developers application security in an effective way? So basically the, from the backstory, the security tools are typically built for security teams and written in a security person's language. But maybe security is not every developer's bread and butter, but they have to learn the security as part of their profession. So how to teach application security for developers in a such a way that they don't have to learn everything from scratch and all the, all the twists and turns and tidbits. So, Scott, maybe we start with that.
0: Sure, sounds good. You know, I think this is a funny conversation because we always talk about this in a in a way that doesn't ring true to me sometimes where we say things like developers need to learn application security and developers need to understand, you know, it seems like... And then we don't do that to ourselves. We don't go security people need to learn how to code and how to write intricate application software and you know those kinds of things. So it's weird that we do that. To me, it's weird. I like to think about it as a, we need to empower software developers to know, to be able to know if they're making security mistakes. They don't have to be experts in application security. They don't have to be experts in pen testing. They have to be experts in writing software. But part of that is can we give them the tools and information for them to make decisions quickly? And that is maybe obfuscating a really difficult topic, which is application security, and turning that into easy-to-consume information so that people can make decisions. If you've ever seen me talk, you, you've you seen me do this like weird slide where I go, uh, the executive team wants to change the pricing of a product. They don't go, hey, FP&A team, uh, we want to change the, the SKU price of this thing. The fp and team doesn't turn around and go, cool, let me teach you about Excel. Now, Excel has a lot of power and tooling in it, and you need to know that it was written by Microsoft. Like, they don't do that. They go, here's the spreadsheet change the top line number, and you can see what falls out the bottom, right? So they're giving them tools and information to be able to make decisions. And I think we should, kind of as a security industry, think about that and how we can empower those engineers to make active decisions about application security. In a much simpler fashion that doesn't require, you know, hairpinning on one security professional in an organization or using some crazy tool that you have to spend a month learning how to actually install, set up, and run and then consume results. Instead, making that much, much easier to consume. I'd love to hear Darren's opinion on, on the same topic here.
2: Yeah, I I fully agree. Like the question is based around teaching a security person's language and I think it really needs to be treated like a language. Like, as you say, we need to empower the developers to be able to make these decisions and understand these situations. And I would perhaps approach that by trying to find the kind of translators or interpreters within your teams already. So in my experience, there's always a lot of overlap with both security and development. There are security-educated developers, and there are security personnel with development experience and finding these people and kind of elevating them to the place where they can support the developers as they need to do these security tasks and then make them the leaders of the developer driven tool sets required for security is, in my opinion, the best way to progress to basically raise the development up to where it needs to be security wise by giving them the responsibility for it and setting the paragons inside their teams to handle that.
1: What are your experiences in developers' willingness and openness to approach security topics when the opportunity is given to them?
0: That's a great question. It's super loaded with what's the dynamics of the organization and how has security uh, influenced or affected development teams previously. But generally, I think developers are willing to learn anything that helps them do their job faster and better. And their job is to deliver value to customers, right? Right application software that delivers, quickly delivers value to customers in the form of features or functionality or bug fixes or security stuff, depending on what they're trying to do. Where you get a lot of resistance in my experience is when you try to teach them a different job. So when you try to go, "Hey, I know your job is to deliver features to customers, but I also want to teach you how to do my job as an application security person." Then they start getting like that that squinty eye like, mm, "This is going to go sideways." kind of look on their face. But at the same time, like some of the more effective security training I've ever done. And I say effective now and then at the end you're going to be like, "That's not effective at all." Has been like finding stuff that bug bounties or pen testers or application security professionals find, grabbing that dev team, and then taking them through the journey of an AppSec Pro. I found this, then I poked at this, then I poked at this. And you can see how I then use that to exploit the service. And usually in that, you know, developers are a class of people that are mostly curious, I think. Uh, generally, they're very curious about learning things and understanding new perspective Whether or not they portray that when they speak is a different thing. But when you put them in that situation, generally they're like, wow, this is really cool. The problem is it's not a core piece of the function that they perform in the organization. So they're looking at all the work that an AppSec person is doing here and they're going, okay, let's get to the punchline here. How do I fix this? And then we expect them to go do all of that pre-work that an AppSec person would do to figure out where their problems are to then fix. And that is where you get the like, I don't have time for this, right? You don't. I don't have time to go put in all this work and learn all these tools and, le- and, you know, I have a job and I get paid and incentivized by how I deliver software and my performance is measured on how I deliver quickly and quality a uh, software to the organization and then ultimately to the customer. So, you know, back to that same question, how do we, How do we get them that information so they don't have to put in a bunch of work so that they can
1: make decisions? Any thoughts, Darren, on developers, general developers' openness to learn that area?
2: Yeah, I think the key aspect here is speed. In my opinion, developers don't want to be chained down by security processes, which will slow them down. It's exactly like Scott says. They want to be able to deliver faster and higher quality As soon as you insert a security tool which starts slowing them down, that, in my opinion, is where you'll find the resistance you're talking about. And I think the the security tools going forward are going to have to take this into account, because if they want to be useful, they have to be as kind of invisible and as streamlined as possible to make sure the impact on the development cycle is as minimal as possible.
1: We could talk a little bit about the requirements for effective, maybe not only application security testing, but more specifically about API testing, because I imagine that that's increasingly the case. Where okay, there is a there is this concept of a full stack developer, and then there are people who say like, okay, full stack developers really don't exist. You you either are a back-end developer or front-end developer, but then then so. Whichever way you take it, um, you are going to be faced with the API testing, nevertheless, either from the perspective of developing an effective backend or developing a frontend tool, which does the job. So let's take a little deeper dive on the requirements for effective API testing.
0: Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, li- I like the uh, mythical unicorn full stack developer. They d- They just don't exist. But if you do find one, squeeze them for their tears. Anyway. Uh, I, th- I think the the requirements for effective API testing aren't different in my mind than application security testing. If you think about them in how it should work today, APIs are in fact applications. And when when you think about how you test uh, APIs, I like to think about that as how you develop APIs. So those two things should go hand in hand. They already do for all the other kinds. Of, well, a lot of other kinds of testing, and just generally not security testing. So if you think about it, unit tests and integration tests and functional tests, all that happens at like the, if you're doing microservices, most of it happens at the microservice layer and then at some integration layer, right? And it's ne- it almost is never push this whole thing to production. Let's test the entire app API behind the API gateway and hopefully nothing goes wrong. But we're testing small bits of code as we're developing it in pipeline, in local development environments. And I think application security testing or API security testing should be the same. You should be able to go, I, I can run unit tests, lint, linting rules, unit tests, integration tests on my local machine. I should also be able to run security tests on my local machine. Not that I have to do it every time and CICD should back that up. But if my CICD does linting, unit tests, integration tests and then we sneak in the security test that I can't do locally like I, as a developer I can't run this thing locally. The only way I can make it work is in CI/CD. You've created this like weird paradigm that people then their next step is like okay, how do I get around this thing? How do I turn this off so that it stops me because I can't self-service. And that's really I think that's really important for API security testing and then being able to decouple away from Front ends when you're dealing with APIs. A lot of the security professionals think about testing APIs as I have to instrument the front end to be able to effectively test the back end. That's a way you can do it, I suppose, but that doesn't guarantee that a threat actor works that way. A threat actor doesn't have to use your front end API or front end web app to access the API if it has a front end at all. Using uh, staging databases, so seed databases to make small data sets so that you're not iterating the entire entirety of production data sets. I like to call that the pants problem. So if you think about a online store that sells pants and you're trying to test that API and there's like five routes total on the API that is like, give me the list of pants. Give me the size for that pant. How many pants do I have in stock? If I have 30,000 pants, I'm going to test 30, like theoretically, I'm going to test 30,000 times five different APIs. If you do that with seed databases, it makes it much easier, right? It's the same functionality. It's the same information. You can do that much smarter in API testing. And then obviously speed is key here because we want to be able to let developers do what they need to do quickly. But being able to do that fast is key. And being able to do that on smaller bits of code and smaller pieces of functionality and and all those all those little like how you develop stuff today for efficiency, if you can test that way uh, and speed is part of that key, then then the whole thing is much, much better. You deliver higher quality software faster and you don't get a bunch of rework because of things that get dif- discovered later in the life cycle.
1: Hmm. There was really something that I was, uh, it, it really spoke to me when I was looking at some of the um, characteristics of uh API testing tools, which was the ability to provide a curl command that caused that error. So you run the testing and then you basically, you find something and then it says, okay, here's here's a curl command that caused it. Sure.
0: You, you, the, other, the other thing is you can take that, I think that curl command, like we talk about this a lot at StackHawk, is being able to go, oh, an alert fired. How do I recreate the same thing that the scanner did so I can go into debug and restart? But it's also fairly simple to turn that into a regression test then, right? So I found this problem. I should be able to turn that into a regression test. I should never find this. I should never introduce this problem again. If I do, that security test should back me up. But I should be able to turn that into a pretty simple regression test based on the the what the curl command looks like and
1: what it's doing. Yeah. Darren, the thoughts on the requirements for effective API testing.
2: I think again, it's primarily along the lines of speed. If we think of developers as wanting to have the results of their scans as soon as possible and not to be slowed down, then obviously speed and responsiveness so that the results are easy to, to understand and to use highest priority. And going into it a bit deeper, I'd probably say that the way to do that is to prioritize the common issues. Obviously, there are these, you know, OS top 10 kind of Problems which comprised ninety five percent of security issues or however high the percentage is. And we can scan for every issue all day long if we want, but all that's going to do is introduce unnecessary speed bumps. So if you want to integrate API testing effectively into every pull request, you want it to be as quick as possible. And you don't want to let yourself get bogged down by all the trappings of things that probably won't affect you
1: in the long run anyway. Any thoughts on that, Scott?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously I agree that speed is key here. Sometimes I I think about the OWASP top 10 as being dangerous because a lot of people go, are we testing for the OWASP top 10? There's more than 10, right? There's more than 10 things that can affect your application, your API. That was just a committee that got together and go, these are the most important things uh, in the top 10, that are affecting applications and APIs today, and they change. And guess why they change? Because things start at like 20 and then they become more important. And then they and then stuff in the top 10 moves down to you know, I sometimes I, I feel like OWASP is doing a great job of helping educate the market about what kind of problems exist in applications, and maybe doing a little disservice by going, these are the 10 you should pay attention to. So, you know, I agree that speed is really key. Uh, I agree that uh, having some kind of like understanding of top 10 is important, but that doesn't mean that something that's number 11 can't like be the root of a huge problem in your application. You know what I mean? So I I I have a love hate relationship with the top 10.
2: Yeah. I think it's more about having a framework of prioritization. It doesn't necessarily need to be a top 10, but you need to be able to determine what you're looking for, and which ones are most important? And the OWASP Top Ten, yeah, it, it does have its downsides, but it does give us that framework as well.
0: The, the way the OWASP Top Ten started was really, let's put educational material out in the market so people can start learning about application security issues and just general awareness of what those things are. Because it was kind of was kind of a new space, right? You got Jeremiah and Arsnake out there like doing crazy stuff with web applications, and everyone's like, wait you can do what to things. Um, (laughs) And so then the top 10 was really good. Like, here's 10 things that you should be worried about. Many, many more people, including CEOs are more aware of application security issues today. Like I said, I love hate relationship with this top 10 because people get so focused on the 10 and they forget about like, there's more than just 10, right? There's, there's, (laughs) There's a lot.
1: Is there a way to look at that from the perspective that, okay, let's try to be incredibly efficient on the top 10 so as to get more time to work on the rest?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you if you think about a couple of the really important ones in the OWASP API top 10, which is like broken access control and function authorization, like those two things are the ones that get you in the most trouble in APIs. But they're not the only thing that happens in, in API security. But if you understand, uh, and this is this is one of my big beefs with how we do application security. Broken access control is called tenancy filtering for most developers. Like how do I keep one tenant from another tenant's data? And in, in application security land, security person land, we call it something completely different. So now there's gotta be this translation layer and all kinds of stuff. And instead being able to go, hey, if you're customer A, you shouldn't be able to see customer B's data and you should write tests for that, that you, you've just taken care of basically, I think it's number one, it's either number one or number two in the top 10. Now you've got a lot of time to focus on other stuff that's in there, including injection and data working agreement stuff with the front end. If there is a front end, you know, lots of other things that tenancy filtering bit is kind of a right once use many, as long as you get it right that one time and use many, you're in pretty good shape with most of your APIs.
1: You mentioned the difference between tenants, but there's also a difference between the teams. So in, in, in one way, yes. Yes, you don't want misappropriation of the data by one customer for the other customers data. But also it would be nice to have a way for front end and back end teams to somehow be able to communicate in a shared manner and have the same vocabulary for the same things. Like well, let's start with the with the question, is that a problem? And if so, how should teams go about like, establishing a vocabulary, establishing a communi- the way of communicating, and a, maybe codifying it as a contract?
0: Darren, I'm curious what your thoughts are here. Like I've, I, I have a whole rant about working agreements here, but uh, I'm curious uh, what Darren's thoughts are.
2: I'm not really sure on this one. There's some kind of, I think depending on the culture of your company, there's always going to be communication issues between the back end and the front end between the back end and security between security and the front end there's always going to be this kind of locking of horns in my opinion where the responsibility will ultimately fall on the back end to support the data that needs to be handled and the api as it stands but other than that i just I'm not really sure how to approach the communication issues there, aside from, as I mentioned before, trying to set up these. It's like like you say, there's the, the tenancy side and there's the authorization side. These are like the same thing spoken from a different angle and only by having people in the team who understand that the this is the same point being made in different words. These kind of people who have the knowledge for security and the knowledge for development in the team. That's the best way I would see to approach solving this problem. It's, again, the case of language and making sure that there are people in the working unit who understand both of them.
0: Yeah, totally. So, you know, Agile brought along this whole idea and concept of working agreements, how Agile teams interact with each other and when they communicate and how they communicate and um, those kinds of things. And I, I think the how you're handling data can be included in that. I think it's even easier when you're dealing with REST APIs, GraphQL, to some extent, SOAP a little bit, <laughs> but maybe not SOAP. I don't know. If you're dealing with SOAP, uh, you know I, I feel sorry for you. Uh, also good on you because that XML fun. Anyway, when you're talking about API specifically in the backend team that's handling that API data... The great thing is you can codify all this stuff in an open API spec. You can communicate with the front end team and anyone else who's gonna consume this API in the open API spec. Like you can go, hey, I'm gonna return you this kind of data and it's gonna be encoded this way and you will have to decode it to get it to a normal state. And when you decode it, you should safety decode it or you know whatever that is gonna be because you have the ability to, to, to codify exactly how you're going to communicate in that API and make it standard across many front-end teams, many API teams who think about AWS and how their APIs are documented for better or worse. They are documented pretty well in what they will return and what they will do. That's because they, when Bezos came down from the mountain with the 10 commandments of thou shalt API... All the things in Amazon, you know, he he was kind of force, foreseeing this. How do, what's the working agreement between all these disparate teams that are working on infrastructure and services and inventory and all this stuff to be able to quickly iterate and develop and deliver platforms to be able to sell, I love that it started off as selling books, everything, and then turn that into what is now AWS. So being able to not have to have a meeting between the, plat- the infrastructure team that does instances and the networking team that does connectivity, but instead documenting that all in APIs so that both teams can go, I know exactly how to spin up a VPC when I start an EC2 instance. I always wonder what they were called before there was uh, AWS. When you, when you spin up an instance, and how do I attach it to a VPC? That's all codified in APIs. And it's such a great way to be a very standard, prescriptive way to communicate, here's how I'm handling data and here's what you're going to have to do with it, I
2: think. Taryn? Yep, I I agree that. And we're starting to even see that diverge across the other cloud platforms as well as the language becomes kind of common. And it's it's actually kind of an interesting occurrence because I think, as you say, that the language set out by these massive cloud systems that we're all now being kind of herded towards is what's going to make the communication possible in the future. It's kind of becoming pervasive that that will be the language we use. So there are some good sides to that, as well as the obvious negatives.
1: It's very interesting to listen to the conversation, because we started with the word contract. No, after five minutes or seven minutes, we figure out that, okay, there is a contract, but it's not the contract in the sense that we as humans usually perceive contracts. It's a way for us to say, okay, here, here is how we put it down in a technical sense. So we don't need a contract because it's, it's the solution that and it's the agreement in the system that establishes the contract for all of us. And I, I can see that human communication is extremely ineffective and prone to errors as a transmitting mechanism, and uh, codifying in some other way is much more unambiguous.
0: Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's I think it's super interesting. The downfall here is like, if you don't have an open API spec or an introspection query that defines all of this stuff, then it's still ambiguous. However, there's a ton of like internal uh efficiencies that you gain by doing that as you're developing uh software. So, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have said, we, you know, we don't have an open API spec for this REST API. I always ask them a couple of questions. How do you onboard new engineers to that service? And how do other teams in the organization interact with that service? And there's usually two answers. One is it's in a Word doc and I and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> Or the other is they read the source code. And both of those, one of them is crazy. I don't know who's keeping up a Word document about software that you're writing in some other language. Uh, But the other one is like, read through all this source code to figure out how to interact with my API. That's so inefficient. So a little bit of work up front not only makes interacting with that service much easier, but also onboarding new engineers so that you can go faster uh, makes that easier as well, because they can, Also, read the open API spec and go, Oh, I get what this is doing. Uh, Now I can find that place in the code and iterate on it or make it better or add functionality that doesn't exist.
2: And I think this kind of brings us again back around to speed because the reason these open API specs, this level of documentation doesn't exist is often because a developer won't want to feel constrained. They want to code, they don't want to be writing about their coding. It's a kind of a self fulfilling prophecy that just kind of goes around.
0: Yeah, sort of. I mean, most most frameworks have the ability to with annotations and stuff automatically create OpenAPI spec. Uh, and so it's just understanding how to use it and then using it. I don't I don't necessarily think it's any slower than what you're writing as code anyway. It's just the awareness of can I do it is usually the biggest hurdle.
1: It's slower again building quality right into your software development is a necessity. To learn how it works and how to get there, we've recently released a new Continuous Quality Assurance Guide that will give you the foundational understanding around the area. Whether you work in management, development or elsewhere, this guide talks to you about test automation, test design, test metrics, test environments, test data and the future of Continuous Quality Assurance. You can find the link to the guide in the show notes. Now, Let's get back to our show. I think we are approaching the big question, which is uh, in order to ship secure applications, what should the primary targets for application security testing be?
0: Primary targets for application security testing. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, When I start a new security program, I always take a risk-based approach to this. So what is driving value and customer value in the company and start there? Obviously you could start with the internal, uh, internal employee directory or wiki page or whatever that is, but you're probably not going to get a whole lot of bang for your buck in trying to tackle that. But uh, if you start taking a risk-based approach and the other thing I tell, the other thing I coach security people uh, on my team is if you have not worked with an engineering team before, go sit in on their scrums, go sit in on their meetings and just listen and and be a participant slash team member to them. So if I was going to go, okay, we're starting an AppSec program at brand new company, we we have nothing uh, and we're starting. The first thing I would do is go to uh, like the chief product officer or the chief financial officer and go, where are we driving value and revenue from? And figure out what things engineering is working on that delivers that. And then go sit with those engineering teams and just participate in their scrum, like sit in their daily scrums, their planning meetings, and listen to the problems that they're trying to solve and how they're solving them and how they're thinking about them for a month. I I wouldn't even, I probably wouldn't even, I would maybe say hello and stuff and not be creepy, but I wouldn't say anything else in their scrums and just tell them like, I'm here to observe, I wanna understand what you guys are working on. And then after a month, start uh, working with some of the team leads to go, hey, I think there's a way we can introduce some security testing or some security process, threat modeling, chaos engineering, whatever it is. Software composition analysis, static code analysis, dynamic code analysis. There's a hundred places to start. It depends on uh, what the thing is and why it's valuable, I always I always tell people starting with SCA and DAST is a really good place to start because both of those are two different pieces of information that you action in two different ways and give you good coverage on code bases that you're working with. But start introducing stuff slowly and go, I think this will work, and then iterate with that team. Because if it doesn't work for the team, it's not going to work. You can't just go, uh, here's the tool, I put it in your pipeline, I got to go to lunch vacation or whatever it is. Right. And iterate and then figure out how that works and build champions on an engineering team that are like, Hey, that security team over there came and sat with us and they turned into a really cool partner and they're not telling us no, and they're not stopping us from doing stuff. They're helping us go faster. You'll be amazed at how, how quickly that spreads like wildfire in the engineering team as they're talking and just collaborating. And like at lunch, like, what are you guys working on? Well, we got this security person who's in our scrums and he's, actually, he and she is actually awesome. Hopefully you can drive people to come ask you for help. That's the best case scenario, but making sure that things are working for that engineering team and then getting to a baseline status where you're like, okay, we think we have everything covered. If new stuff pops up, we can make decisions about it and then talk about it later. And I think that part is important too. make decisions, talk about it later. Whereas usually that is flipped. Let's talk about it and then make decisions. That. Is the antithesis of speed, especially mm. when there's one, two, five AppSec people that you have to do that talking with, uh, and I think this comes back to the core tenant of security people's job: trust and verify. That we seem to have lost a long time ago. Like. Trust and verify, but I don't trust anyone, so I can't. uh, But trust and verify is super important in this process of let people make decisions, review those decisions. And if you disagree, go have a conversation instead of I'm the only one that can make decisions.
2: Cool. Darren. Yeah, I think this is a kind of a difficult question to answer if we're looking about the primary targets of apps of app testing to ship secure applications without really seeing the application in question at least for me without the application without the threat model it's difficult to kind of understand the discussion but i mean first i agree with what scott's saying about the finding these these champions inside the application teams i think so many things we've discussed so far have all come back to communication. Ensuring there are these security enthusiasts in the development teams is always going to make communication easier. But from the side of like shipping secure applications, I can only really talk about it from a kind of perspective of a theoretical, of like theoretical actual priorities of what I would be looking for in this kind of test. And it's actually quite interesting because thanks to the EU that's changed somewhat over the last 4 years in the wake of GDPR so before the priority might have been for example ensuring tamper proof systems but now obviously the priority has shifted towards ensuring that sensitive data is not in any way available so we've kind of we're kind of in a process where the priority is being taken towards ensuring data leaks are not possible this kind of sensitive data that like names credit card details phone numbers the kind of thing that causes problems for gdpr and i would be quite curious because i don't know if there are current regulations similar to that in the us at the moment scott but maybe you could comment on that
0: yeah it's kind of regional at this point so You've got stuff like California law that dictates some of this stuff, and Colorado law that dictates some of this stuff. It's just not at the for the United States at the federal level. Uh, doesn't raise up to the federal level or even the union level like uh, GDPR does today. But it's getting there, right? There's states are starting to pick this off as their constituents uh, become affected by these things and complain to their representatives, and then start writing law. And hopefully, people aren't. Uh, blazing new trail in all this new law as they're writing them and making sane decisions based on consulting with people. Oh, but what works for law and what doesn't? I'm assuming at some point, we're going to see it at the federal level in the States here, because it's necess- it's going to be so unwieldy for companies to like, Comply with California law and comply with Oregon law and comply with Virginia law and comply with Maine law and comply with North Dakota law. You know what I mean? It's just going to become like this crazy mismatch confluence of all kinds of law that you have to do. And I hate that I'm saying this, some kind of consolidated federal law. It could be better. How's that? It could be better than disparate little laws along the states could also be much, much worse. But uh, let's hope that that's not what happens.
1: There are two observations that I made throughout your two of your conversations. And uh, the first one was that you both advocated sort of the approach to first go vertical. So basically pick a team and go deep into the team or pick a subset of the company software and go deep with that into the team. And once you get it, then go horizontal so so uh, adopt the practices like adopt the scope with a team whatever that team purpose is and then once you get that right then you have learned something and then you can start bringing to the adjacent teams and then you can use like practice communities or other kinds of ways to proliferate that information so and I'm really glad to hear that considering that we always say that from software development most of that is culture and tools then serve the culture, or whichever way you want to put it, the other. Uh, this is not an observation, but this is maybe some of the devices for for those teams who need to make a decision. So my background is in a, in a behavioral economics, and I just wanted to share with something again from cross discipline. So you Scott said that first to make a decision and then discuss. There there are two devices that those teams can try and apply to see if they have made the right decision. So one is. Make a decision and then try to live with it. And if you cannot, then you know that you have made the wrong decision. And that that happens automatically in in your approach where you make a decision, then you start implementing it in software, and then you figure out that this really doesn't seem to work, like we have made a wrong decision.
0: Yeah, and I think important caveat to make a decision is make a conscious decision and not an unconscious decision. Like if you are making decisions about stuff you're not considering, that's an unconscious decision. That's probably not what you want in that, in that scenario, because you're going to be reliving a lot of those unconscious decisions. However, if you're making conscious decisions about things that, you know, or things that you can make, you know, gut risk acceptance, risk checks. We do that all the time with like MVP, like what parts of this thing do we have to have? What parts of this thing do we not have to have for the first cut of it to see if customers like it? uh those are all conscious decisions and i i tot- i love what you said there like if you're making a conscious decision and unconsciously deliberating it come back and and view it and that's that like that 100% that's the agile process like iterate yeah did the thing that we decided on work no cool let's change it and iterate sometimes it's naturally hard for security professionals to like participate in this at ad- like we this agile mentality we security pros tend to think in absolutes, right? If there's one thing broken, it's all broken. If there's one unpatched server, it's all unpatched. Like the whole thing is at risk because there's one thing, you know what I mean? Like this whole, it's either all correct or all wrong is a really bad mentality and mindset. And a lot of security pros, uh, it takes a while to figure that out, to like understand that, you know, we, (laughs) there's a business that started and we put a bunch of money into it. And that was the very first risk that we took, that someone took, was like p- putting money into a business and betting that people would pay money for service. That was the very first risk we took. And you're not even considering when you're thinking about risk as a security pro, you're not even considering that. Like, you're just like, cool, the business exists. It's never going to not exist. It never didn't exist. So that that absolute, the absolute value of, of risk is something that is hard to like learn how to mold and shape in an organization based on risk tolerance.
2: I do agree with you here, Scott, but I think also it's a little bit bit outdated to say security people are focused more towards the absolute. I think over the last five years, we have started to see a considerable change from the saying no to a kind of leaning in to find a way to say yes. And I think, yeah, that's very important to be able to not be the guy sat in the corner just saying no to everything that everyone asks because then they'll just, exactly as you're saying, they'll kind of find a way to circumvent you. They'll find a way to, like, silo you or exclude you. So it's vital to be able to keep that approach of yes and leading up, building up, and securing to give them that yes.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, I... I was just speaking in absolutes myself (laughs) with (laughs) like, we have a tough time with this. It's definitely changing. Like people are seeing the writing on the wall. Like I I have to be a consultant to the organization about risk and not just be the person who goes, "Uh, there's no, we can't have any risk Uh, because it it falls on deaf ears. Um, So there, there's definitely been a market shift in how security teams and security professionals are talking about and discussing risk. And I love what you said there um, about being the yes person. Like I, I, I'm a huge fan of improv comedy, and one of the key tenets of improv comedy is keep it going. Like somebody says something, and you say yes, and and keep the conversation going, and the the bit, and the skit. Roll like it shouldn't end. That same thing applies to how the business should run. Is yes, and we want to do something that's risky. Yes, and. Here's how we can manage that risk or, mi- or take a big risk and then minimize it down the road or, you know, th- those kinds of things. And the worst thing you can do is go, we want to take a big risk. No, you just killed the skit, man. Our improv troop is now on the floor going, that's not how this works.
1: Yeah, we we had a Rust uh, language programming language training the other day in the office. And uh, we were having a conversation like, why C as a programming language allows you to so effectively shoot yourself in the foot as, as opposed to like Rust making it harder deliberately. And, uh, one of the, one of the point of view in that conversation was we have to look back for the fundamentals uh, of the language from where it was created. And when we think about the value of a CPU cycle, back in the time C programming language was created, it was incredibly more expensive to do one more CPU cycle. So it was cheaper for everyone to teach software developer and engineer to do the right thing and then just tell them, like, don't shoot yourself in the foot. Like, it's a bad thing to do. But here is how you do it. Now, world has gone on and the the cost of a CPU cycle has basically collapsed, which I think it's an understatement for the value, mm. which allows us to create prog- programming languages that makes it harder to shoot yourself in the foot because it's not that's not the purpose. Maybe there's something along those lines also for security culture, security practices, security tools, because now you can introduce the security testing tools more effectively that shape the culture from the no culture to the yes, but culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's kind of the very first thing we were talking about. How do you effectively give people the information they need to make decisions and not give them the C version of it like, hey, you got to you got to pop this onto the stack and then take it off the stack and make sure you unallocate the space and blah blah. Like, yeah. You can do that. And there's lots of places that that still happens. The Linux kernel, that still happens. And because it's super efficient and then they create APIs for you to interact with so that it makes it harder to shoot yourself in the foot. And the the same thing I think totally to your point can exist in in security, uh, in application security where I'm giving you enough information so that if you shoot yourself in the foot, you pointed it there and pulled the trigger. Like Hmm. it's still doable, but you are actively making the decision to do it.
1: We are coming to our last question, and uh, uh, it has been uh, such an uh, interesting conversation, but all good has to end sometimes. Um, And it has been uh, intertwining between the culture and the tools. And uh, my last question for the both of you would be to elaborate on the important characteristics to look for in their security testing tools and API security testing tools.
0: I'll, I'll go first. I, you know, I have a bias here because I'm an API, or I'm an application security tool vendor. But I think if you consider tools that have the end user in mind, the person that is writing software, the person that is fixing software, uh, if you consider tools that do that first, you'll have a much better time because it, it, ultimately it's empowering the people who are creating value and who are being incentivized by delivering and Creating high quality applications at a high rate. Their incentive is not create the most secure application there is. So if you think about when you're doing, oh, I got a good one here. If you think about that while you're doing tool evaluation, and by the way, if you're a security pro evaluating application security tools and there is not someone from the engineering team in your evaluation doing evaluations from you, you're probably doing it wrong. Like they should be partnered up with you to try to figure out. Your job as an application security pro is go, I know what tools are out there and what we can look at. Please come participate with me to try to do some evaluations on this stuff with what will work with your development cycle. If you don't do that last part, tool's gonna be vaporware or shelfware that like, hey, we rolled this out. Nope, we turned it off. That's it didn't work. Um, so I think those I think that's really key is is does the tool have the person that's gonna consume the information in mind? And are are they making it hyper consumable, hyper reactive and ultimately can you go from i i see that there is a problem i understand the problem and i am now fixing that problem as fast as possible with that tooling i think that's the real the real key to empowering software engineers with application security tooling and software and
1: process over to you Darren
2: yeah i think we're going to be talking again on the along the same lines here because i would say yeah it's definitely the kind of automation and the ease of integration because there's this kind of old school security paradigm where you have one security tester sat in front of a keyboard opening burp suite testing a API. And these tools, the for the time at least, the older school tools kind of enforced that paradigm. And you can manage these kind of audit style tests once a year, maybe maybe every six months if you're particularly effective. And if you're testing your software for security every year, then every year you're going to have a long shopping list of things you need to deal with. The rate at which threats are evolving is just increasing and increasing. So, yeah, to be able to have these tools that you can automate and integrate into the developers' platforms themselves, into the CI/CD itself, is so important just to have the automation at their core and to shift the responsibility away from the security team, at least in part, towards the developer so you can have that kind of iterative process. It's all about the iteration, and it's about making sure that every release has this testing, not that one person has looked at it like last year at some point. It's so important to be able to deliver these tests quickly and directly into the hands of the people who can do something about them.
0: Yep. I, I, t- I totally agree with what Darren said. There. Like, It's so important to be able to test early, test often, test a lot, baseline the thing. When new stuff pops up, you probably just introduced it in your pull request. And then being able to go back and go, "I this is the code that I changed. It, my issue probably exists in here somewhere. It's so important as, uh, as opposed to like, hey, there's a problem. And now... Search, all of the source code along all of the, you know, whatever, making it small and iterative, like the agile process and the development process is so important.
1: I've been listening to some podcasts and there's, there's one podcast in particular where they ask this, this great question at the end. What are we not talking that we should be talking?
0: What are we not talking about that we should be talking about? I mean, the end of Spider-Man No Way Home, probably, but what is, what's the unknown unknown? I don't know. I, I think Moxie just did a really good write-up on uh, Web3 and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. What are the security implications of, uh, you know, he was talking about Web3 is all about decentralization, but there's centralized platforms that are getting people access to these decentralized platforms, right? So consolidated, interesting consolidation on access to decentralization which is sort of hilarious. Um, did a really good write-up. And and what is the, I mean, obviously there's privacy implications in that, right? So those companies have the ability to go this wallet and this wallet and this wallet and this wallet are all the same people. And so how do you, what is, what's the privacy security implications of those gateway services in web three that he, I think he made a super good point, um, even though he wasn't specifically calling it out, I don't think, but. Just talking through his experience on developing Web3 in in a Web3 environment and uh, what that potentially could lead to, I think that was super interesting. Obviously, much more to evolve there.
1: We'll be sure to add a link to that post um, in the show notes so people get to do a deeper dive on that. But Web3 really seems to be coming up fast. And it's uh, fun to watch when most of people are still having their popcorns out and not having made their mind on this whole thing. And then the people are slowly coming, coming forward and say this. This is my point of view on that. And we really are looking forward for very interesting uh, opinions, conversations, and point of views on that. Darren, what should we be talking about that we are not talking about?
2: If we're talking about generally in security, I would say supply chain issues. We are. I mean. It's kind of a cheat because the conversation is kind of starting about those. It's picking up speed, but I don't think it's picking up speed fast enough. All these dependency-based attacks are starting to become a considerable problem. And based on how we see it, it's been a considerable problem for some time now. But we're only just getting the steam started behind that conversation. So I'd say that's something we need to be talking about considerably more.
1: Now it's time to say thank you Scott, for participating. Thank you, Darren, for participating as a conversation partner. And uh, again, it was a wonderful discussion. And uh, everyone else um, on the line, you get to hear more about this subject again in the DevOps conference coming up in the beginning of March. And you'll find the links on the show notes as well. Thanks again.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you for having me. It was super fun to chat with you guys today about application security and like all the stuff that goes around it. Like you, you say application security, and it, you you think about like tools and people, and there's a ton of like culture and process and collaboration and all kinds of other good stuff and that goes into it. So I I super enjoyed chatting with you guys about it today.
2: Yeah, I think it's quite in- interesting how quickly the conversation shifts from application security to kind of the concepts just behind it and always seems to come back to contracts and language to be fair but thank you for having me it's been very fun talking to you guys
1: thank you for listening as usual we have enclosed the links to the social media profiles of our guests to the show notes please take a look you can also find links to the literature referred in the podcast on the show notes alongside other interesting educational content If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, I would like to invite you personally to the DevOps conference happening online on March 8th and 9th. The participation is free of charge for attendees. You can find the link to the registration page from where else than in the show notes. Now, let's give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. I say now take care of yourselves and see you in the DevOps conference.
0: Hey everybody, I'm Scott Grillock, Chief Security Officer and Co-Founder at StackHawk. StackHawk is an application security platform focused on developers, helping them find, fix application security problems while they're writing code. I worked in security for about 20 years, uh, GoDaddy, SendGrid, Twilio, a couple little jobs here and there in between. Uh, so going from a practitioner of application security, uh, and, or in charge of application security to a, Hey, I really need this tool and, and a maker of tooling and, and theory on process and all that stuff has been a super interesting journey. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed our chat today.
2: Hello, I'm Darren Richardson. I'm the cloud security architect for Efficode. code. I have been working in DevOps and security for the past four or five years. And thank you for joining us on this podcast.